Welcome to Bonehead. I'm going to keep this really short and say this is part two of our interview with the famous writer, the iconoclast, Mr. Peter David. That actually leads me, and I know my friends have a couple more, that actually leads me to my final question. Could you tell them, you told a fantastic story of how you would have done Superman 4. Oh, God. Well, but, it's not that how I would have done it. You have to understand that when I go to see a movie, I'm always trying to figure out what's going to happen. Right. So Superman gets up in front of the United Nations and Superman says, I have decided to get rid of every nuclear weapon in the world. Yep. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is brilliant. Because the UN is going to go, excuse us? You're going to do what now? And Superman will say, I'm going to get rid of all the nuclear weapons. And the world's going to say, no, you're not. You're a private citizen. Those are the government's properties. You can't just come in and take them. And Superman's going to say, well, I've been thinking about this a really long time. And I'm afraid that it's the only way that you're going to survive. So I'm going to take your nuclear weapons. And the UN is going to say, you set one finger on our nuclear weapons and we will stop you. And Superman's gonna say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm gonna do it because this is more important. And he's gonna take off and suddenly we've got Superman versus the world. Yep. And oh my God, and who is the world going to turn to to try and stop Superman? Obviously, Lex Luthor, right? And suddenly Lex Luthor is going to be in the position of being the hero of the world because they want him to stop Superman. And oh my God, this is going to be brilliant. It's going to flip the entire Superman legend <laughs> on its ear. That all went through my mind in a second or two. And in the next second, the entire United Nation stands up and goes, yay! <laughs> 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 and I'm going, oh, Jesus Christ. Are you out of your minds? There's no way. There's no freaking way. So I would have paid serious money to see that you know, the Superman film that I thought was going to be. Except God knows it wasn't. No, no. Cannon spent that money someplace else when they were making that. Oh, God, what an awful film. What an yeah. awful movie. Yeah. I mean, let's keep in mind the first Superman film was terrific. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, it was it was absolutely it was absolutely brilliant. My wife was working was a student at Yale Drama School. And they did plays up there. And there was one, you know, and they were in a small theater and there were several theaters back to back with each other. And she hears someone from next door going like that. They're doing very loud warm-up exercises, totally disrupting their ability, you know, my wife's people's ability to get the job done. And she turns to one of her assistants and says, you go tell that idiot to shut up. <laughs> and the assistant comes back and says, I can't. And she says, what? And she sends another person to go do it. And the other person comes back and says, you're going to have to handle it. And she rolls her eyes and she walks back and it's Christopher freaking Reeve. <laughs> and, going, and she says, Chris, you can't do that here. 
we're rehearsing out there. You're disrupting everything. And he says, where am I supposed to go? And she said, ask your stage manager. He will bring you someplace where you can do this quietly. And he says, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> God. Um, yes, yeah, Su Superman, Superman 1 had some problems. I mean, you know, turning the world back. What? Yeah. yeah. Superman 2 also had a few problems, but, you know, was certainly fun. Superman 3, terrible. Superman 4, God almighty. But, uh, yeah, that, yeah, I remember Superman 4. Jesus Christ. I, 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 and you might disagree with me. I still think that there's only been one good Superman film, and that's the first one. Because I, I, I have a lot of issues with the second one. And, you know, why, it, why, it holds, why people hold it to a higher level. And I, I don't quite understand it. Well, it doesn't have him turning the world back. Yeah, but so it has him throwing that plastic plot. S. No, but it has the cool villains. It has the cool villains, and most of us like, love it for the fight with the villains in Metropolis. Yeah. yeah. The stuff that happens subsequently in The Fortress of Solitude makes absolutely no freaking sense. Yeah, you know, the, the, the fight scene. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But the sequence in Metropolis absolutely kicks ass. I mean, no, I agree when, with you on that. When he's got Zod and he's whirling him around and he throws him into the Coca Cola sign, Coca Cola again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, when I saw that, the audience went absolutely wild. They absolutely loved that. And I, I love Neil before Zod. Yep. Yes. I mean, you know. That, I mean, that, is, that has become such a part of culture that there was an episode of Supernatural <laughs> which had this little kid named Todd who managed to gain power to kick the ass of every kid who was a bully to him. Mm -hmm. And the kid stands there yelling, Neo before Todd! <laughs> <laughs> Neo before Todd! You know, so you know, what the hell? Why not? But yeah, three and four are awful. Yeah. Uh, that's Terrence Stamp, right? Yeah. Superman yeah. Returns had some good moments. The sequence where he's rescuing the falling airplane was pretty good. No, I agree with you on that. But um, and I, I hate to say it because he's now has fallen into disfavor. But Kevin Spacey was a dynamite Lex Luthor. Oh no, yeah, that's that was uh, Superman Returns was that was the highlight of that movie was seeing it's just him kind as of Lex a Luthor. boring film though. It, yeah, yeah. It, it was. I mean, here here's the thing. The way that I've described it is that with Brandon Routh, once he had the once he had the costume and the hair and the spit curl and the special effects, you could believe that he was Superman. Mm -hmm. With Chris Reeve, all he had to do to make you believe he was Superman was take his glasses off. Yep, right. Agreed. That moment where Chris Reeve takes off his glasses stands upright and says, Lois, there's something I have to tell you. You know, I didn't believe that a man could fly, despite what they said in advertising it. I did not believe a man could fly. However, I did believe for the first time that a man could disguise himself with a pair of glasses. Yes. That, that I bought. Yeah, and that's entirely because Chris Reeve, and what a wonderful actor he was. And it's and never it, been replaced. There's no, no one who is. And I don't even think Henry Cavill, like he's playing, he's still playing Superman, even as he is, even as Clark Kent. It's just, there's no, there's no difference. No, no, no there's, there's none whatsoever. Not yep. to mention the fact that I love that in their own continuity, 
Clark Kent comes back from the dead and Superman comes back from the dead. Oh, yeah. No one's going to figure that out. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know how much as I've shit on that movie, that's the first time I ever thought about it. What? There's, uh, so, many the other, there's so many other bad things in that particular film. It's the first time I've ever thought about that. Well, there, there, there's some good stuff in there, too. I mean, you know, I have to admit that I would be interested in seeing the original Zack Snyder cut as well, just to see if it's not? really yeah. that much better. At this yeah, point, I would be interested in seeing it, but at the same time, seeing Zack Snyder's two Superman films and just like, uh, I don't see why everybody's arguing with it, but at, but at the same time, I can. I, I have still to be say, in. I like Justice League better than I did the first Henry Cavill Superman film. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was I was not blown away by by the first Superman film. Well, I wasn't yeah. either, but you're the first person I've ever heard say that actually. Yeah. Huh. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it was worth it for Wonder Woman. <laughs> but she is uh, to me. That's that's one of those lightning in the bottle. They found the perfect person to play. They did. Like I, I, I still love that everyone on Paradise Island spoke with an Israeli accent. <laughs> because Gal Gadot cannot speak with any other accent. Right. So yep. everyone was imitating Gal Gadot. I thought that was fantastic. Yep. The Amazons are Israeli. I totally believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Totally I, did, I didn't I didn't actually ask you about your time and I know we've been going for a while. James, do you want to start? Do you have I, I, I wanted to ask one more question because it's something that I get. You understand I have nothing else to do. We do, but you also <laughs> understand that we've tried to be as polite as possible. I did. <laughs> okay. We're more than happy to talk to you for a while longer. We just did. Sure. Okay, cool. Well, but, James, you ask your question, and then I got something I want to ask too. I, I wanted I to ask of. because uh, I was a huge fan of your Incredible Hulk run. Uh, I have, it again, got me through parts of my life, and I appreciate that, but – I, my son has discovered something that I, I bought from the first issue, which I believe you co-created uh, Miguel O'Hara as Spider-Man 2099. I created Miguel O'Hara. Yes, I did. And I, uh, I, I just wanted to, to ask you about, so, you know, that I, I'm fascinated by that entire quote unquote Marvel part of the Marvel universe and how it disappears and comes back now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so just I, I just want to ask you a story about how did that come to be and then uh i also wanted to know your thoughts about sure. a certain after credit sequence in a certain <laughs> spider-man film okay um what happened was marvel approached a number of writers including me and they said we're going to be starting this 2099 line and we want you to develop spider-man 2099 the concept is that he's a geneticist who works for an out a super outfit called alchemax that's all we're going to tell you. We want you to come up with his identity, with his origin, you know, his, his backstory, other characters. Create a comic book series for us. And so I sat, you know, and I was like a number of, of writers who were approached. And I sat down and the first thing I thought was, well, I'm not going to make him an ancestor of Peter Parker. I'm sorry, descendant. He's not going to be a descendant of Peter Parker because that's the obvious way to go. So what I decided to do was zig everywhere that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko zagged. Peter Parker was an orphan. Miguel would have a mother. Peter Parker was a standard white guy. Miguel would be someone of mixed ethnicity. 
I made him Mexican Irish because I figured let's put together two ethnicities that don't remotely seem to go together. Uh, Peter was an only child. Miguel would have a brother. Peter was a teenager. Miguel would be in his 20s. Peter had no idea how to approach women. Miguel would have a fiance. Um, Spider-Man sticks to walls via basically magic. Um, Miguel would actually have talents like a spider. Spider-Man swings on webbing. Miguel would move like a parachute spider. He would have basically glider webbing on his back that he would use to soar through the air because parachute spiders are really thin. And I developed all this and I came up with some, I came up with the basic outline of how he went up getting his powers. I came up with some sample villains that he could fight and I turned it into Marvel comics. A week or two later, I get a call from Joey Cavalieri, who's going to be editing it. And he says, we love what you came up with for Spider-Man 2099. First of all, you're the only writer who did not make him a descendant of Peter Parker. Um, yeah, gee, it's funny how that worked out. They gave me a few thousand dollars for writing it. And they invited me to actually write the series. And I said, sure, absolutely. And uh, they brought on Rick Leonardi. And I will always remember our first gathering of the 2099 groups. And uh, we wound up splitting off into our groups. And I sat there with Rick and watched him design the costume. I mean, I told him what I wanted. And, and Rick sat there and, and drew what I came up with. And he came up with his own, you know, additions to it and choice on it. I went, oh, my God, yeah, that's terrific. You know, that kind of thing. And that's how the character essentially developed. Um, so now flash forward to uh, Spider-Man in the multiverse. Dan Slott was at the Marvel screening, sitting next to a reporter. And when the lights finally came up, the reporter turned to Dan and he said, who was that who yelled, yes, when it said, meanwhile, on way to York? And Dan said, yeah, that would be Peter David, the creator <laughs> of Spider-Man 2099, which I did. When it said, meanwhile, on way to York, I knew exactly what they were going to be doing. So, you know, I thought that that, I thought that, that was tremendously entertaining. I don't remember if I was the one who named it Nueva York or not. Well, you also wrote uh, the video game series. I uh, did. Um, and uh, so, so you, you've, uh, how was how it writing a video game different than the movies that we've talked about, the comic books, the novels? How, how is that different? Um, when you're writing the video game, what you're really basically writing are the cutscenes. Yep. Um, the video game creators are the ones who come up with all the stuff that the people are actually doing. It's your job to come up with the basic premise and to write all the cutscenes that will lead you from one thing to the next to the next. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's really kind of bizarre. But I mean, I still remember um, I was on a panel advertising, um, I did, promoting the, the video game. 
And I was on the panel with Val Kilmer and Katie Sackoff and Trisha Helfer, you know, which I thought was tremendously exciting. I mean, I said I'm sitting here with three of the most beautiful blondes in Hollywood. One of these Val things Kimmer, does not. And Val Kimmer went over and rubbed my head like that, which is always <laughs> hilarious. And they put up one of my cut scenes for the audience. And I had put in there a line that I assumed they were going to cut. You do that as a writer sometimes. You put in stuff that you figure they're not going to cut because you figure that they're going to want to cut something. So put in stuff that you don't really care about all that much. And then when they cut it, they can feel like they did something and you haven't lost anything. Right. And I had a sequence in the Daily Bugle where J. John Jameson is ranting because Spider-Man is becoming more popular. And I wrote Jameson saying, you know, he's becoming so popular, they're probably going to wind up making a whole Broadway show about him, have a chorus line of <laughs> dancing Spider-Man, which they actually did. And the audience howled when Jameson said that. I was in there going, they kept that line in? I thought, sure, they were going to cut that line, but no, they, they kept it in there. So I was, I was pleased about that. I think the, uh, and again, I think this goes back to your building in humor and going back to the comic books. I think one of my favorite scenes in Spider-Man 2099 is not an action scene. It's, it's nothing else. It's when he's having the home computer program, Layla, I believe, go through all the different personalities. And one of them pops yes. up and it's very Aunt May-esque. Yes. And, says, oh, I could be, and he goes, delete that. I don't want yeah. that one. That one. Get no. rid of that one. Never again. Kill that one. Yeah, kill that one. Yeah, I, I literally was sitting there and I just, I can remember reading it and I couldn't stop laughing. I had to go back and be like, okay, I need a second. So Not only for- that, I remember that scene because I actually had Miguel break the fourth wall. He's looking off panel and then she appears and he looks right at the reader like, <laughs> seriously? And he turns back and he says, kill that one. And she's gone. Yeah, yeah. So, so- I mean... I, yeah, I I loved writing I I loved writing Lila. She she was a yeah, yeah. tremendously was... fun character. I'm I I specifically designed her to look like Marilyn Monroe. Um, which they then changed when they made her in the movie, which you know I can kind of understand, because mm-hmm. when I did it back in the 1990s, Marilyn Monroe's estate wasn't watching to see what I was doing in Spider-Man 2099. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, everyone's so freaking litigious that I can just see the lawyers going, no freaking way are we going to have Marilyn Monroe in our movie right. and they get sued by her estate. That's, I always think about the uh, the international play of that because, uh, what is it? Um, oh, the Italian comic book. Uh, Del, it's not Della Morte, Della Morte. It's the, um, so anyway. Uh, well, yeah, but it's... Um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. But in, in the, thanks, Chad. Uh, in, in the... He has a Groucho Marx as his assistant overseas, and then when it was published here, they digitally removed the mustache in the comics. So it's just a Felix is his name in the uh, American version. Um, and I'm blanking on the name of that. It's, it's by the same uh, the same publisher that published Delamorte Delamore, which became Cemetery Man, but I can't remember. Uh, oh. uh, Dylan Dog. Dylan Dog. Dylan Dog. Yeah, Dylan Dog. One of the uh, worst movies we I've ever seen in a theater. I've seen probably worse at home, but Dylan Dog, the movie with Brandon Routh was one of the worst films I've ever seen. We actually had the editor on the show 
in a quick story, it's, it's, it's Paul Hirsch. He won an Oscar for editing a little movie called Star Wars. Uh-huh. And, I, and the last question we asked, I said, I, we, we, we three agreed that we had to ask. Dylan Dog, he goes, I'll tell you. It was right after the financial crisis and they could pay. That was all he would say. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It was this whole explanation of why he edited Dylan Dog. Sorry. God knows I've seen my share of bad movies. I still, I still remember when I saw Happy Gilmore, I almost walked out. The only thing that stopped me was the stewardess said I had to sit back down in my seat. <laughs> <laughs> not, an Adam, not an Adam Sandler fan, huh? Well, I wasn't a fan of that movie, no. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of shit for it over the years, too, of not being a huge Adam Sandler fan. I must have been the one, especially in my age group, everybody, but I'm the one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the things that we have to, well, we don't have to, and I was kind of, and I'm trying to figure out how I want to phrase the question. Oh, boy. I'm sure, no, no, it's not bad. You get asked a lot about it, and you were friends with him for many, many years, and we lost Harlan a few years ago. Yes. And I don't want, normally I would say, so what's the craziest story, but we're talking about Mr. Ellison. So lots of people got lots of different stories. I have a great Harlan story. Okay. That's at MadCon. I was wondering if you were going to bring it up. Well, I was at MadCon, but maybe was it after he told me to go fuck myself or, <laughs> or that he, he beat somebody with a, with a gift? We, were, we, were, had, we have a MadCon story too. He hit James with a glass Spider-Man and that's a whole other story. Oh, Jesus. No, this sure. happened at the dinner. I was at the dinner. I remember him going off about, and I told him to get chicken because that's what, do you remember this at all? They had, it was like fried chicken. No, here's what I remember. I don't know if this was the same dinner or not. It might have been a different MadCon. Oh, really? Harlan was giving out something called guava paste. Hmm. No. Oh, this okay. Be different, a different MadCon. Different MadCon. Different MadCon. Harlan this is had the one he. Our MadCon, really quick, was the one where he walked around the whole weekend saying he was dying. He was going to die. Oh no, that was a, that was a more re, that was a, that was a, the last a, one he did. I yeah. think. And and of course it was many, many years later that he did finally pass away. But No, no, no. This was it, no, this is not that one. It was a very Yeah. We were doing the Saturday we were doing a Saturday night dinner for all the fans. Mm-hmm. I was there, Harlan was there, Neil was there. And the fans had chosen tables to sit at. Okay. You know, so and it was chat it was a charity thing, a fundraiser. So they'd actually paid money to sit at my table or sit at Harlan's table. So Harlan had come with this thing called guava paste that he was giving out to people. He was slicing it in little thin slices and putting it on crackers. Kath crackers? He's not there. Toast or something. Right. No, cream cheese. That's it. Guava paste. It's right, exactly. And of course, Harlan's making a big deal about doing this. Neil, in the meantime, is being Neil Gaiman. Just his, the people <laughs> at his table are roaring with laughter at stuff that he's telling them. And I'm keeping my guests entertained, but I'm worried that I'm not doing anything that's really memorable for them. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, my God, I have an idea. And I said to them, I have an idea. What would you think if I did this? And I described it to them. And they go, oh, my God, yes, yes, you must do that. And I said, it still needs something, though. I'm not sure what. At that point, a very tall guy named Barney 
comes over and he says, Mr. David, I just want to tell you I'm a big fan of your work. And I look up at him and I said, I want to do something and you can be of great help to me. And I describe it to him and he says, oh, I'm definitely in. So, okay. Harlan's now in the middle of the floor giving out the guava face. Neil's being <laughs> Neil. And this is what Harlan suddenly sees. I leap to my feet and I start pointing and screaming and I say, tell them, let everybody know it's people. Guava <laughs> paste is people. <laughs> Barty comes running in, throws his arms around me, lifts me off my feet and starts hauling me out of the room as if he's been sent by the guava paste people to <laughs> shut the pig up. I continue to scream, it's people, guava faces people, as Barney is hauling me out of the room. And he pulls me through a door, and I hold on to the edge of the doorframe, and I'm screaming, it's people, as he drags me up. <laughs> the place is in hysterics. Neil Gaiman literally fell off his chair. <laughs> he was laughing so hard. Barney and I walk back in, high-fiving each other, and Harlan Ellison, Harlan freaking Ellison, drops to his knees and starts going, Oh! Like Bill that's... and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes. Start doing the we're not worthy thing. <laughs> um, the, the funny thing was, later Harlan told me that he knew that I was feeling fairly strained because my marriage was collapsing. And he was worried that I had just actually snapped for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I will always remember, you know, Har Harlan salaming me for that. Um, there crazy. was another time where Harlan was being inducted into the, uh, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. at, a science, at the Science Fiction Convention, um, I forget which convention it was, but it was being held in uh, Arizona. I believe. And Harlan was a bit disappointed because nobody he knew was going to be there for the induction ceremony. And I finally said, you know what? Screw it. And I started checking. I was able to get a really cheap fare to fly out to Arizona. And I flew out there. And because we were leaving from JFK, we wound up leaving an hour and a half late. So I was worried, you know, that I was going to wind up getting there after the, uh, after the ceremony, I drove, like, I've never driven 90 miles an hour before, but I was driving 90 miles an hour to get there. And I got there and I see Harlan sitting up there on the stage. He looks like death warmed over. He is bored out of his mind because you've got all these people coming up saying nice things about him. And that's not really Harlan's style. And I walk in and Susan sees me and she goes, Susan, his wife, and she says, what are you doing here? I said, I, I managed to get a flight. And I got in there just as they were finishing up. Yep. And Susan indicated to them that I was there and I wanted to get up there and talk. And they just gestured, you know, come on up. So I went up there with no announcement whatsoever. And I started talking. And Harlan suddenly came to life. He looks up, he's like, oh my God, Peter's here. And I was talking about Harlan. I was saying some joking stuff. And I finished up. I don't remember the details of what I said. 
And Harlan leaps to his feet, runs over to me, drapes his arm around me, and says, I dreamt one night I was on the boat to heaven. And I immediately <laughs> responded with the next line. And we stood up there and we sang a chorus of Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. And the audience was thrilled because finally, after two hours of this shit, Harlan <laughs> finally came to life. And they were so thrilled. They were so thrilled. Remember when I told you that I, I once fell off a, a conveyor belt? Mm-hmm. And, and I and I injured my back. Yeah. Um, they were they were going to do surgery on me, and it was going to be like the next day or so. And they could not find any painkillers that were stopping the pain. Mm-hmm. So instead, they put me on what did they put me on, Kath? They put me on morphine. Jeez. So that the bad news was. It didn't make the pain go away. But the good news is I no longer cared. Yeah. <laughs> I was just high as a freaking kite. Right. And I'm sitting there on the on the living room couch and I take my and I pick up my phone and I have no idea why I called Harlan. <laughs> and Harlan answers the phone. Yeah. Which yeah. is how he always ends the phone. And I said to him, Harlan, you know, hi, it's Peter. I just want you to know that you are like a second father to me. I love you, man. You, you are so great. And I'm sitting there, and Harlan's like, and Kathleen walks in, and she just says, "Who are you talking to?" And I go, "Harlan." And she says, "Give me the phone." <laughs> and I give her the phone, and she says, "Harlan." And Harlan immediately says, "What's he on? What's he on, and why?" And she explains that I'm on morphine because I've injured my back. Well, Harlan can immediately understand that. And he calls Susan because Susan had also injured her back. So they had doped Susan up. So <laughs> she knew everything to do. So Susan and Harlan walked Kathleen through everything that she needed to do to take care of his delirious husband. And the last thing he said to her was, keep the phone away from <laughs> So she says, okay, and she hangs up and starts walking with the phone. And I'm going, no, give me the phone. I want to call somebody else. And she said, who do you want to call? And I said, Myra. Myra's my ex-wife. And, I said, <laughs> and she says, what could you possibly want to say to Myra? And I said, <laughs> to this day, my daughter, Ario, is pissed off that Kathleen did not let me call. <laughs> but yeah, Harlan, Harlan is, is, was always a terrific guy to me. He, he, was, he was just great. Well, he hit James, but... Yeah, but um, it was... Uh, it was well-deserved. Oh, it was well. deserved. It was... Well, yeah, I... Uh, space trucker loving ass need to get hit. Yeah. The, uh, but it was, it was really after, after MadCon, I actually sent him a letter saying, you know, how much he, he meant to me, how much he really, again... Like I said, uh, helped me get through some uh, stuff in high school and helped me get through college. And, and uh, I loved when he did the stuff on Sci-Fi Buzz. And he, oh yeah, his willing his his reference to you should read this author, you should read this author expanded my reading, and and that's paid off for me a great deal. He was um, always so he's always so understanding, so helpful. I'll I'll tell you a story. There was a writer who was a reporter, and he wanted to break into science fiction. 
and his stuff was getting rejected. So he wound up tracking down Harlan's phone number. And he said, you know, and Harlan answered, yeah, as he always did. And the guy said, Mr. Ellison, um, I want to be a science fiction writer. And my stuff keeps getting rejected. And I was wondering if you have any advice. And Harlan says, I will tell you, I can tell you exactly why your stuff's getting rejected. Okay? Here's the reason. It sucks. Stop writing stuff that sucks. And then it will be accepted. Okay? <laughs> and the guy said, okay. And Harlan said, good. And he hung up. That's how J. Michael Straczynski met Harlan Ellison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to stop you, but I had heard that from JMS before. Yeah. Writing crap. If you don't write crap. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, but I, I, after the, after MadCon, I sent him a very uh, letter just saying, you know, it's an honor to meet you, and it's, I, I figured that'd be my one-time meeting him, and it was. Right. Uh, but he sent back a very nice letter, and it was typed, as one would assume. Of course. Um, and it he, it was very short, but he said, I can tell that you're not one of those troglodytes that only communicate <laughs> 140 characters at a time. Uh, and he said, you know, I, I'm glad that uh, I've been able to help you in some way. That's worked out great for you. Uh, you've got to keep doing your own thing. Uh, I've got to go now. The first time I met him was at the 1974 World Science Fiction Convention. It was called DISCON. I was in the convention room. I was covering it for a Philadelphia newspaper. And so I'm going over the list of people that I would like to have a chance to interview. I said, I'd like to interview Rogers and Lasney and some other person. I said, I'd like to interview Harlan Ellison, if that would be possible. And suddenly a voice shouts, gangway! And this streak of light comes blasting through the room, sh shoving me out of the way. I almost fall. And he goes right through the room and out. And I said, who the hell was that? And they were laughing. And they said, that was Harlan Ellison. <laughs> and here's the thing. Some years later, I was at a San Diego Comic-Con and a book had been released called The Essential Ellison. Mm -hmm. And I saw people carrying it around and I was going up to these people and I was asking them, could you have lived without that book? And every single person said no. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I guess it's really essential. <laughs> <laughs> Some months later, Comic Buyer's Guide asked all of our, we columnists to write Christmas lists of things that we would recommend that people get. And I recommended The Essential Ellison, and I described how people said they could not live without this book. The next thing I know, I come home, and I have a recording on my answering machine from Harlan Ellison proposing marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... That's how I really, that's how I first got to know him. Yeah. Our friendship deepened some months later when he sent me a fax that I'd later found out he'd sent it around to a number of his friends that he was upset about because a group of goons had created a thing called Enemies of Ellison. Their plan was to put together a book that was going to be a slam book of people who Harlan had supposedly wronged. And they were going to publish this book posthumously. 
so they couldn't be sued. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary Groth was one of them. And Harlan was really upset. He was really upset. And all his other friends said, ignore it. Groth is trying to get a rise out of you. Oh, and the, and the flyer was anonymous, right? They didn't even put their names. You know, uh, they're trying to get a rise out of you. Don't fall for it. I read it and I said, no, this will not stand. I will not tolerate this. And I wrote a But I Digress in which I ripped them to shreds. I mean, first I said, you know, these guys are so freaking brave that they're anonymous. Second, yeah. their deal is you can join Enemies of Ellison if you write something for their book and if you send them $13. And then you will be able to buy copies of the book at a discount. And I said, so let me see if I understand this. You have to pay them to contribute to a book that they are then going to sell, presumably for profit, which you can then buy copies of. I said, screw that. I am creating friends of Ellison, foe. And I said, <laughs> here's what we want. We want you to send us no money. We just want you to send us a story of how Harlan positively affected your life, like the kind you were just telling me about. And we will send you a Friends of Ellison and there will be no charge for this button. And I got to say, the button we made up was really nice. It was this three-inch big red and silver thing. And it was just, it was a really nice, and it was not cheap. And I didn't care. I absorbed the price. I absorbed the cost of it myself. Although some fans did wind up sending me money just to cover the cost of buttons, which is very generous of them. Um, but I put, a, and so then Enemies of Ellison tried shifting tax. They set out a new flyer in which they printed their names and they did away with the, uh, with the money that you had to send them. You could just send them a story, but still purchase copies of the book. And I wound up getting over a hundred stories from people about positive things that Harlan had done, which I put together into a book and sent it to Harlan. And in the meantime, Enemies of Ellison got two entries. <laughs> two. At which point, Enemies of Ellison announced that they were, they, they called them, they changed their name to Victims of Ellison. They thought <laughs> that Enemies was sounded too nasty. And a couple months later, Victims of Ellison announced that they were shutting down because clearly people were too afraid of Harlan to support them. <laughs> and they vanished off into the ozone layer. And Harlan was so freaking grateful. Because his other friends had just said, you know, live with it. And I said, no, I'm shutting this down. And yeah. I did. And, and that, that led us to become really good friends. He wound up being the best man at my, uh, my second wedding. Wow. And my last wedding, praise God. <laughs> <laughs> right, Kath?
No, she's already gone. She's you gone. know, honey, when you're off to the side raising a thumb, they can't see that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make up our own bullshit story that she walked out. This was like, why is he taking his time to talk to some assholes named Boneheads? And she's still like, yeah. packing her bags. No, now. here's what you should do. You should graft in a naked woman walking behind me. <laughs> did, did you hear about that? No. 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 Some, I think, was Spanish, Kath? Yeah, we think some Spanish reporter was reporting from inside his house because of what we do. We, yep. And he was unaware of the fact that a naked woman was walking around behind him <laughs> who was not his wife. Oh. It was one of his co-workers. Nice. So, holy crap, kids. Mm, yeah. I thought it was just bad when the, my toddler walked up and asked my boss the other day on Zoom if uh, she was done. <laughs> in our meeting we we work at universities all three of us and right associate dean yeah yeah we need to figure out how to green screen uh life force behind peter david yeah <laughs> I, I still remember when i was working at marvel comics in the direct sales department uh there was one day where i brought in my then five five years old i think no maybe four year old daughter Shayna into my office because it was bring your daughter to work day and at one point I got a little busy and I lost and I got distracted and I suddenly realized I'd lost track of her. She had wandered out of my office and I'm going like, holy crap. So I, 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 I run out of my office and I go walking past Mike Hudson's, Mike Hobson's office. Mike Hobson was the vice president of Marvel Comics and his secretary, Alice was sitting outside and I said, Alice, have you seen a little girl recently? And she said, yes, yeah, she's in Mike's office. I said, what? She said, she walked into Mike's office. I said, was anyone in there with him? She said, yes, Jim Galton. Jim Galton was the president of Marvel Comics. <laughs> so the president and vice president were sitting there having a meeting, and my daughter walked in. And I'm going, my God, I'm fired. That's it. They're going to fire me. And at that moment... Shayna comes toddling out of Mike's office and she's got an armful of books and toys. And she's going, thanks, Mike. And walks <laughs> out. Her first name, because they're old buds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I stuck my head in and said, guys, I'm so sorry. And Mike said, no, she's great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we probably should end. Okay. Mr. David, well, we're going to end the recording. We'll talk to you if you've got a second right after. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Thank you so much for all the entertainment. Thank you so much for all the great stories. You're very welcome. It's not a problem at all. And thank you for taking a little uh, air out of Joe about going off on Alien. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, Mr. David. I think yeah. you're still full of shit and Alien's a classic. It's right <laughs> over there. Oh, it's right I, I fully admit that it's a classic. <laughs> It's a classic to people who don't sit there going, this makes no freaking sense. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of movies that are classics that I have a problem with. I mean, when I was, when I was 13 years old. They're loving this. They are absolutely oh my God, this is amazing. When I was 13 it. years old, I saw 2001 in the movie yep. theater. I was bored stiff and didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> I then saw it some years later, I was in my 20s. Yeah. I was an experienced science fiction fan. 
I had read both the Sentinel and the novelization of the movie. So I now knew entirely what was going on. And I sat there and it still bored the crap out of me. <laughs> okay, it's not just me. This is a boring ass movie. No, it really now, is. Now people will say, oh, it's a classic. It's this and that. I'm sorry. It's dull. Yeah, hold on. Let it's Joe go off about how dull. it's an experience. It's an experience. Bill Moomy has you, Chad, it's me. an experience. Now, I don't know Bill that Moomy I would recommend has told me that I am the only person he knows that has not seen 2001 while being stoned. I haven't seen it stoned. I, that's the reason. I mean, Kubrick, it would have failed if it hadn't been for LSD. <laughs> It's true. You may very well be right. No, no, it's true. Absolutely, Peter. If you get a chance to look it up, in in fact, when it first came out, it was very sluggish. It wasn't till it caught on when people were seriously tripping to go see it, and it became an experience. Oh yeah, I can imagine that. that That's when it caught the end. On. Yeah, with all the colors, was pretty trippy to watch if you're stoned. Yeah, then but you I'm sitting there watching forty freaking minutes of cavemen bouncing around a black slab. It's going, Jesus Christ, <laughs> I could have done this part in two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. The, you know, the thing, maybe five. Five, you know, they're, they're primitive. Then all of a sudden this thing shows up and it starts to elevate them. Five minutes, I could have knocked it out. Right. And you right. took half a goddamn hour. <laughs> Listen here. Listen here, USOB. Let me ask. <laughs> let me go around the room. Hold on. What else are you gonna shit? Are, are you, can you shit on Star Wars? Oh, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> I've, I've heard Harlan do it. I've heard Harlan. I've read Harlan's um, critique of Star Wars, and then how he 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 liked Empire. But yes, go oh, ahead. Oh, I loved Empire. Yeah, right. I love Star Wars. The first it it came out a week or two before my first but for my first marriage day. And that is all that any of us were freaking talking about. We love Star Wars. I mean, you have to understand, I saw Star Wars before it was episode, before it said episode four. When it was just Star know, Wars. Uh, a new hope. No, before it said episode, did it say episode four? No. No, no, it, it doesn't. It In the original theatrical, four, it just. It did not Star say Wars. a new hope. I saw it when Han shot the goddamn alien. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Star this, okay, this is my life, okay? When Phantom Menace came out, <laughs> uh, no, there's a point to this. Yeah, I Star, get Wars, it. Star Wars wound up in heavy rotation on TBS. And I was channel surfing and Star Wars was on. I said, you know what? I haven't seen this in ages. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching Star Wars and I'm watching the Battle of the Death Star. And the phone rings and I answer the phone. Hi, Peter. It's Mark Hamill. Um, I said, wow, Mark, um, I'm watching you about to blow up the Death Star. And Mark says, I can call back. And I went, no, it's okay. I've seen this movie before. Um, and the reason he was calling me was because he wanted me to write an introduction to a comic book series that he had written pearl as being yes black pearl before black pearl. The sorry pirate. i'm sorry i i it, yeah i just remember pearl i've read it i own it but black, I, the black pearl, black pearl. Okay. they were going to be doing a trade collection of you wanted me to write the intro and i said sure i'd be happy to and then i hung up and i thought to myself 
how has my life reached this point? <laughs> Sounds fantastic. That freaking Luke Skywalker calls me while I'm watching Star Wars. And the thing is, I met Luke Skywalker because I was introduced to him by Bill Mooney. Yeah. Will Robinson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it had not been that long earlier that I was sitting in Luke Skywalker's apartment with Will Robinson. <laughs> you know? And it was just, you know, kind of insane. I thought, this is where my life has gone. I that's wound a up charmed life, sir. For a I wound up nerd. attending George Takei's wedding. <laughs> I wound up being mistaken for Will Smith's bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously. I'm completely Ow. serious. I was with Will when he went to go see a football game that his son Trey was playing in. It was a big it was a, a big high school match. Yeah. Up in Seattle, Washington. I was out with Will because I was working on a project with him. So he invited me to fly up there with Caleb, his brother in law, and his actual bodyguard. And we showed up on the field and we got spotted and the audience went completely nuts. Even the fans in the opposing team were cheering. And my wife told me that somebody had put out a thing that said, Will Smith and his bodyguards have shown up. <laughs> and I turned to Caleb and I said, apparently we're Will's bodyguards now. And he said, yeah, really? He said, yeah. I write about that in my autobiography, which will be coming out in July. Oh, okay. I was going to ask. So, yeah, yeah, because you mentioned Bill Mooney. You co-created Space Cases with him. I did indeed. Oh. Yeah, my, my autobiography is being published by McFarland Press, not McFarland, McFarland Press. The mm -hmm. title is Mr. Sulu Grab My Ass and Other <laughs> Stories of My Life. Really? Yes. That's, that's a an amazing great, title. fantastic title. It's also true, so... You remember when we asked before the interview started, when I said, is there something you want to talk about? That That's actually what people say. Do you know my autobiography is coming out? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. Well, We've sure got to pick it up. That. We will totally buy it, and then we will pimp the shit out of it. Yeah, oh, I say, we you. will. We yeah. will. Because I said, I um, would love you, to read it. You created many things. But you also, speaking of autobiographies, didn't you co-author uh, James Doohan's autobiography? I did. Because I, I did it. Uh, that, I, think, that was, I think it was called Beam Me Up, Scotty. Yeah, that's... I, it, was, it was actually kind of interesting because James wanted to write him himself and he couldn't. You know, he, he just couldn't do it. You know, the stuff that he was turning in wasn't good. And Simon and Schuster said, you need a co-writer. And they sent me out there. And I knew that, that Jimmy was regarding me with a certain degree of suspicion. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, who is this guy that He's going to help me write my autobiography. So I knew that the first question that I asked him was going to be really important. It was going to set the two, the tone for our relationship. So I put on my, t you know, he, he came to my hotel room. We sat down. I turned on my tape recorder and I said to him, tell me about the first time that you saw a television. And he went, because the thing is, I remember the first time I saw a color television. I remember exactly where it was. It was at the World Series in 19... It was at the, uh, the World's Fair 
in the, at the World Series. It's pretty exciting. Um, it was at the World's Fair in 1964. I even remember what they were wearing. Superman. Nice. Right? So I knew that, tele, that Jimmy was older than television. So he must remember the first time he saw it. And considering that's the medium that he's most identified with, I thought that would be an interesting point of view. Mm-hmm. And he goes, the, I don't remember which year it was, but it was a World's Fair. And he started talking about the World's Fair, and he started talking about these two girls that he went to the World's Fair with, that he said, my God, I haven't thought about these girls in ages. And he starts talking about them. And all this stuff is coming out. And the conversation just went from there. But that really built up his confidence that I could bring an interesting new point of view. Now, the thing is, we talked about Star Trek, and he remembered almost nothing. I mean, he really hated Shatner, and I thought we could finally get down to why it is that he so disliked Shatner. And I discovered that he didn't really have a good reason. The things he disliked about Shatner were just things that Shatner was doing as star of the show. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy took offense at it, but I really thought it was misplaced, but I didn't tell him that. So most of the recollections that he has in, that are listed in the book, no, those mostly are things that I knew that I was aware of through my long time being a fan of Star Trek. So I was able to expound on them in the book. The really sad thing is I saw Jimmy a couple of years later at a convention. I brought a copy of the book because I wanted him to autograph my copy of the book. And he looked up at me and he said, hi, do you want me to sign the book? And I said, Jimmy, it's Peter. I wrote the book with you. I spent a week interviewing you. And he just said, do you want me to sign the book? Yeah. And I looked at the guy who was sitting with him. And the guy just shook his head and said, this is one of his better days. And I went, crap. So I had Jimmy sign the book without trying to further make clear to him Mm -hmm. who I was. But that just always saddened me that his mind was so gone by that point that he had no recollection of who I was. I mean, that he didn't recognize my face. Well, he hadn't seen me in some years. So I could see if maybe he didn't recognize my face upon seeing me for the first time. But the moment I said, it's Peter, I wrote the book with you, that should have triggered a a a recollection. No. He was that far gone. He died a a couple of months later, but as far as I was concerned, he was already gone before that. I felt so bad for Wendy and his kids. Yeah, that's... uh, uh, uh... Scotty was always my favorite character. My father worked in a factory, but he was a trained quote unquote engineer. So, right. uh, and so Scotty was always is still my favorite character. And, and I got to meet him once and it was, or it was actually my first quote unquote pure Star Trek convention. Uh, I still remember being at a convention in Glasgow. I said to my audience, guys, could you just say something for me? Can you say, Captain, the engines cannot take it anymore? <laughs> and they wouldn't do it. You just have to go, yeah, no, we're not going to say that. Like, Damn it. But yeah, that, so I, I wanted to bring up that book, though, because that's, I think, uh, James Dewan, I mean, he was a, pi- a fighter pilot and 
yeah. his entire story is fascinating beyond just being Scotty, who is iconic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, mean, I just wanted to bring I mean, I got, I mean, my God, you know, he was there on D-Day. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, he's missing the middle finger of what right. it was saying. Yeah. That's, yeah. How he, that's how he lost the middle finger, got shot off as he was storming the beaches of Normandy. Yeah. I mean, holy crap. This leads me to a question I wouldn't have asked earlier, but you brought it up. Do you? Oh think, God! No, do you think any of them had legitimate reasons for hating Shatner? Because I mean, Decay's not been a fan. You know, here's the thing: when George and Brad were going to be getting married, yeah, they told Kathleen and I at a convention, and they said they were going to be inviting us, and I said, "I have to ask: Are you inviting Shatner?" And George said, yes, we're inviting Bill. I think it's time to put all this behind us. And Bill wasn't there. And then Shatner claimed that they had not invited him, which pissed me off royally. Because I was certain that they had. There was no way that George would lie to me about that. There was no way he would say, yes, we are, and then not do it. He'd have no reason to if he said, no, we're not going to invite him. What am I going to do? Condemn him? I'd understand. Right. So it really infuriated me that Bill said they had not invited him. Um, my, my understanding is that he could be egocentric and self-absorbed. On the other hand, he was the star of a television show. Yeah, when there were only three channels. Yes, and I could see him, for example, feeling threatened by Leonard Nimoy because Mr. Spock was the breakout character. Mm-hmm. And his attitude should be, his attitude was clearly all the focus should be on me. Yeah. But eventually, you know, at least Bill and Leonard managed to work things out. Indeed, some years back, I was at Dragon Con and I was giving out what's called the Julie Award which was named after Julie Schwartz and it's given for achievement in a variety of different media. Mm. And that year they were giving it out to Leonard Nimoy and I was presenting it. I'm the official presenter of the Julie Award for whatever that's worth. And I always take a somewhat tongue in cheek approach with it. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm standing there and I'm, and I'm, and the, uh, the J.J. Abrams film had just come out. Right. And I'm standing there and I said, Miss, I said, Leonard Nimoy is so identified and beloved as Mr. Spock that when he showed up in the ice cave, in the J.J. Abrams film, the audience that I was with burst into applause and cheers even though it made no story (laughs) sense (laughs) whatsoever and Leonard started howling and I'm standing there going you dropped Spock and Kirk off at two random points on a planet and they find each other in a cave you dropped me and my wife off at two random points in Atlanta and we would not find each other. <laughs> right. I completely the audience, concur. The audience is howling. But what I thought was interesting was that Bill 
was leaning over and I could lip read what he was saying. He's going to Leonard, I told you, I told you that made no sense. I told you that made no sense. <laughs> you know, so I, I thought that, that was absolutely freaking hilarious. Well, but on the other hand, yeah. at a later Julie Awards, it was given to Shatner. And Leonard was not there, but Kate Capshaw was there. Uh huh. He captured, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was more sincere about it because I said, and this is all absolutely true. I said, when I was in high school, William Shatner was touring in a production of Period of Adjustment, a Tennessee Williams play. And I wanted to interview him for my high school newspaper. Now, you have to understand, I told the fans, that when I was in high school, I was not popular. I had no friends. I was that science fiction geek guy. Right. I had no girlfriends. I had no one. But my father arranged for me to come interview Schaffner. He managed to do it through the guy he, uh, he knew who ran the theater. The theater. The theater owner was a guy named Robert Lotham, who went on to some small success as one of the most best-selling writers in the world. Born something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was told that Shatner would talk to me for maybe 10 minutes. He talked to me for half an hour. And I listened to my recording, in which I thought I was coming across like a professional, and I sounded like exactly what I was, a nervous 15-year-old getting to talk to his idol. Because mm -hmm. I loved Kirk. Spock was fine. I loved Kirk. And he was so patient and so nice to me. And I wrote that interview up. And it saw print in my school newspaper. And suddenly, I was the most popular guy in the, in the school. Suddenly, girls were coming up to me going, you met William Shatner? You interviewed William Shatner? Are you going to be interviewing him again? Can I come with you if you do? Here's my phone number. Call me. Yeah. Right? Suddenly, people could not get enough of talking to Peter David, the guy who interviewed William Shatner. So, you know, I owed him for saving my life when I was in high school. So I couldn't bring myself to make jokes about it. Mm -hmm. And Kate Capshaw afterward, you know, and and Shatter came up on the stage to get the Julie Award, and he was clearly so moved. He said, I have no idea. I can't follow that. I don't know what to say. And Kate, and Kate came up to me afterward and thanked me profusely for being so nice to Bill and saying such nice things about him. So, you know, yeah, I know the other actors have issues with him, and George certainly. But on the other hand, he helped me get through high school, you know, and he, we yeah. didn't have to. So I owe him for that at least. And all three of us have met him. And honestly, Chad is the only one who had a bad experience, right, Chad? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was. In all, in all fairness, it was my fault. So I can't. <laughs> he, he... Did he hit you with a glass figurine? No. Uh, um... So, you know, he's really in the horses, right? Oh, yes. So, um, in college, you know, I went to I, my degrees in electronic media, 
Um, and uh, for a summer job, I got to travel the horse circuit and I worked for a company that shot individual horses and based on their clientele and the clients would pay them for the video of their horse so they could study it and whatever. And one of their clients was William Shatner. And it was my first, it was my second day on the job. And they said, you got, you got Shatner's horse. And ah. I'm already a Star Trek fan. I'm, you know, right. Holy shit. Shatner. Really? And I, I had this, it was just a camera on a tripod, nothing spectacular. And all I was supposed to do was go around this circle as he did, as his horse did all these individual walks. And I got so nervous that I looked away from the camera real quick to look for Shatner. And then I realized I'd lost track of him on the camera. Oy. And then I started, I, I was going around the like this. And, and of course he was absolutely pissed that I'd lost like one of his horses and, you know, sure. he let me have it, you know? <laughs> so yeah. You know, I, oh, I, he takes his horses very seriously. He does. I John Ordover once went out to lunch with him. And he said that for the majority of the lunch, he was a middle-aged actor from Canada. Mm -hmm. And then halfway through the lunch, his cell phone went off. And he reached in, he flipped open the cell phone. And for 30 seconds, he was Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, so yeah, yes. I had the negative... I had the negative experience with him, but also Don Mattingly, which is another reason why I say fuck the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a Mets fan, so it comes kind of natural. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, they, they all had their issues. Michelle Nichols has said things about him. I mean, the only one who's kind of semi stood up for him, and James, you can talk about a little bit more about yeah, this, I, Walter Koenig. Yeah, Walter Koenig, I, I, I read his book, Warp Factors, which they've re-released and updated with the last 20 years. I think that just came out. Okay. But I, I saw him at a convention uh, in Richmond, Virginia. I will never forget where it was. And it, they, the, the Fab Four is what they called him. It was James Doohan and Michelle Nichols, George Takei, and, and uh, Walter Koenig. And, uh, and to tell you when this was, Mulan had just came out because George Takei had his Mulan oh. And uh, they... They somebody asked a question about you know is is are the rumors we hear about Mr. Shatner true and and they George K actually kind of rolled his eyes and he actually took off the hat and he just put his head down and Walter Koenig said now let's be fair and then they started to talk over Walter Koenig and he actually left the stage uh, and then I read Warp Factors and I think it's in Warp Factors he talked about that he understood Shatner you know he was a star he wanted to be the center if if it was a scene. He wanted to be in the frame. He wanted yep. to be, um, and he said, I could have understood that. And he said he actually had more of a challenge with Leonard Nimoy, and it's because Leonard Nimoy didn't realize that, like, there was a, there, and I, I may be misremembering it, but there was an interaction they had while they were waiting to film, and, and Leonard Nimoy made a comment about, oh, I didn't know you had a son. And, and he was like, we worked together for, I mean, it was still original series, so, and right. Walter Koenig was a late addition. But uh, Walter Koenig said, I never could get that out of my head that, you know, everybody else was at least aware of my family. And he goes, and, and, and he said, I, I can't forget Leonard not knowing that. So. It's funny to bring up George and Mulan. My daughter, Ariel, was playing this Mulan video game. And she was having trouble with it. And I said, you just need, you know, I said, just need to stick with, you said, I need, you need to stick with this stuff. You know, you know who would tell you that? The great ancestor would tell you that. And she says, oh, right, sure he would. And I said, would you like me to call the great ancestor? <laughs> and she says, yeah, sure, go ahead. 
So I pick up the phone. I call George. And George answers the phone. Yes. And I said, hi, my name is Peter David. Is this the great ancestor? And George said, yes. And I said, my daughter Ariel is having trouble with the Mulan game. And I think she would like to talk to you to help you maybe just calm her fears and frustrations down. He says, put her on. And I said, Ariel, the, grand an- the great ancestor wants to talk to you. And she goes, <laughs> and he picks up the phone and then her eyes widen because you can't fake <laughs> George's voice. No, no. And she's like, as the great ancestor proceeds to, you know, tell her to stick with the game and, and she's going to, she's going to do great. I love springing people on my kids. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, when Caroline was about five, four, four years old, I ran into Tom Kenny at the San Diego comic con. And I was thrilled to meet him. And he said he was a fan of mine. And I said, Hey Tom, would you do me a favor? I said, would you mind call, if we called my daughter and you talked to her as SpongeBob? And he said, sure, no problem. So I called Caroline. And I said, Caroline, SpongeBob would like to talk to you. And I hand the phone and he starts doing SpongeBob's voice. And Caroline freaks out. She, oh, you know, she goes, if you go on YouTube and put Caroline and SpongeBob, you can find it. Nice. <laughs> and she is absolutely flipping out. And then she says, how's Gary? And I didn't know that Tom also did the voice of Gary. Yeah. So Tom immediately starts doing Gary. And, and she was just beyond thrilled. And the funny thing is, my wife brings her to camp the next day. And she says to the counselors, Caroline's going to tell you that she spoke to SpongeBob yesterday. <laughs> she did. <laughs> her father put on the actor from San Diego, it was at San Diego Comic-Con, and he spoke to her. And of course, she did speak. It's exactly what she told the other kids. And the counselors are going, yes, she did. And this one of the little girls says, oh, yeah, I talk to SpongeBob all the time. <laughs> you know, but it's... It's so odd. Again, my life at Dragon Con, we always have on on uh, Saturday nights. We've done this Saturday or Sunday. On Saturday nights, we have what we call rib night. Sunday. I, I thought so. Sunday. On Saturday night, we have a thing called rib night. We bring in ribs from a place called Fat Matt's Rib Shack, and invite all of our friends and you know and and guests of the convention to come up to our suite. Mm-hmm. And just hang out. At the most recent one we did, I've got freaking Joel Hodgson <laughs> asking me to introduce him to Walter Koenig. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to my life. But that's fantastic. That's amazing. And what's funny is, is, oddly enough, as much as we're hanger honors, we've met almost everyone you just said that sentence. Yep. Except for Tom. I've had the privilege, by the way. Tom Kenny is SpongeBob. Oh yeah. He is him. I've interviewed him and have done his panel, moderated for his he he is him before, after. He's one of the nicest people I've ever dealt oh, with. Oh, absolutely. What's really weird with speaking to Tom Kenny is watching Shakes the Clown and then just that voice is the exact you know, SpongeBob, and I'm just like it's kind of hard going back. Yeah, he's he's in uh <laughs> Bobcat Ghostweights uh raunchy comedy from the eighties, Shakes the Clown. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we're almost at three hours, Peter. Did you know oh, that? Good Lord. Yeah. No, I didn't realize that. This, Sorry. You, no. No, this I has been great. I want to tell you something. Okay. I, I don't. I, you are the longest interview we've ever done. Really? This has been phenomenal. Yeah. I Why? How, long, how long before you did another? How long was the previous one? We never usually go past two hours. Two hours. Two, two ah. I would say Pete Von Charlie. We, we probably hit about two hours and 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yep. he's a famous artist. Um, he did, uh, Chad, help me. He out. was a story, he's a storyboard art. Uh, he did a lot of story. He did storyboard artists for uh, Frank Darabont's Stephen King trilogies, uh, oh, Shawshank, cool. uh, Green Mile. And yeah, he yeah. actually talks about how important comic books were to him because he talks about, as he said, he was like, back when conventions were at hotels, and I, it used to be like, oh, you want to meet Jack Kirby? He's by the pool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I feel like we've actually had a conversation and got to know each other. Okay. So I really appreciate that. That's been great. Not a problem. And I, I can't. I like you. your I like your hat, by the way. It looks like an Imagineer's hat. Well, here's the thing. I actually wanted to ask you about it about at thir minute 30 and a minute hour and a minute hour and a half. And the reason is, is there's certain things that I remember and certain things I don't. So I'm terrible with names or faces, but I love movies. I love film. I love it. So obviously I'm going to remember you. You had a Disney thing on your iPad when I met you at MadCon, and then you had a Disney bag at Frankfurt Con, and I was going to ask you how how important Disney is to you. Is it that you go to Disney a lot? Do you go to Disney World? Do you go to Disneyland? Dude, I work for Disney. I know, <laughs> but there's a lot of people, Peter, who work for Disney who couldn't give two shits about Disney. Oh, no, I've been a You understand Disney what I mean? Yeah. I've been a Disney fan for years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled that I now work for Disney because I'm finally getting back some of the money. <laughs> <laughs> are you getting free the, tickets to anything? Yeah, like the parks. Yeah, are you really? Because I've heard that they're bad about not even giving them the talent. No, hold on. Oh, you suck, Peter. I mean, that's <laughs> way for awesome. Here it is. Do it at the same time and say 2001 sucks while you do it. <laughs> What is oh. So you just come and go? Yeah. Oh, Oh, geez. Wow. I, walk, I walk into the park. I flash my card. They say, welcome to Disney. I can, and I can bring in three people with me. At any time. Uh, hey. Anytime. Well, right here. actually, not necessarily any time. There are some times that are blackout dates. Yeah. Christmas Day. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, I mean... The last time I went down to Disney, I went to, we, we stayed at uh, Ford Wilderness. Uh-huh. And we arriving Monday and we were leaving Thursday. So it was yep. during the week. And I called the cast line to find out what it would cost me. And they said it will be $350. And I said, a day? And they said, no, for Monday through Thursday. And you're, are you talking about Fort Wilderness or Wilderness Lodge? Fort Wilderness. Fort Wilderness? Okay. $350 for four days. You can't get that for a Holiday Inn. No. no. I mean, it's, it's just, it's absolutely remarkable. No, I, I absolutely, I, I, propo I proposed to my wife, my, my now wife, my then fiance, at the Adventurers Club on, on, on Paradise Island. It was wow. Pleasure Island. Pleasure, when it was yeah. Pleasure Island, yeah. Yeah, well, no, no, you don't understand. My wife is a puppeteer. Mm -hmm. So 
we were going to all be going down to Disney. My 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 then girlfriend and my three daughters. And I got in touch with Disney because I decided, you know, I, at first I thought I'd propose to her at Cinderella's Castle. And it turned out that Disney has a whole department in charge of that. And you can indeed propose at the castle. The prince will bring out the ring and they'll do it and it will only cost you a mere $300. Which was, which I'm sure has went up drastically since oh i'm years. sure remember this is 20 years ago right and i wasn't sure i wanted to spend 300 dollars. So <laughs> you know what marriage is not a fantasy no marriage is an adventure mm-hmm. and i said what about if i do it at the adventurous club they said well we don't have a program for that but here you can talk to a guy named bill shepherd he was the stage manager there Mm-hmm. And maybe you can arrange it with him. So I called Bill Shepard. I identified myself. I told him what I wanted to do. He said, that sounds like a lot of fun. And what I wanted to do was have one of the puppets propose to her. And I would write what the puppet was going to say, because that made sense to me. The writer was going to write for the puppet to propose to the puppeteer. <laughs> and he said, okay, we can do that. He suggested we have the character of the colonel do the actual proposal. And I said, fine. And I sent him the dialogue that I wanted the colonel to say, and he signed off on it. And he said, okay, when you arrive, you, there's going to be a guy standing out. There's going to be a guy there that, I, that he's going to be your contact guy. Um, the character's name is Otis Wren. No, not Otis Wren. I forget, uh, I forget which character it was. But he said, he'll be wearing a pith helmet and a grass skirt. So he should be pretty easy to spot. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. So my wife, my, my, my girlfriend, and my three daughters arrive at the Adventurers Club. And he's standing outside. So he's clearly looking for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and thing is, she didn't know. So he said, hello, how are you? And I stepped in close and I said, my name is Peter David. Bill Shepard said I should speak to you. And he said, yes, I know. It's all arranged. And I went, oh, thank God. And I said in a louder voice, uh, could you tell me where the men's room is? And he says, oh, I'll take you there myself, which got a very odd look from one of my kids. And he brought me to a room, to, through a door that said cast only. And he says, Mr. David, my name is Graham Murphy. And I want to tell you that I am a huge fan of your work. In fact, everyone here at the Adventurous Club is a huge fan of your work. And I was so freaking thrilled because I had never been so glad to meet a, to meet a group of fans yeah. as I was at that particular moment in time. And the proposal went off without a hitch and she accepted, obviously. And it all went, it all went great. And a guy came up to me afterward and he says, my name is Carl. And I just proposed to your fiance. He was the one who'd been <laughs> operating the puppet. And Carl and Graham are good friends to this day. As a matter of fact, when we were down in Disney seven years ago, I had a stroke. Uh-huh. And Kathleen and Caroline wound up staying at Carl's house for a few days. Wow. Well, I was in the hospital, you know, 
working on recovery. So, you know, I don't know where the hell we would be, we would have been without Graham and Carl on our backs. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been a Disney fan pretty much the entirety of my life. Wow. Me too. Uh, my, my grandmother, my mother was raised in uh, Merritt Island, which is next to Cocoa Beach. So okay. when I would go see my grandmother. I'd get one day growing oh. up. And later, that's where my future wife and I went on our first vacation. Um, James, I was the first one to take him to Disney. He went with Disney. Oh, okay. With us. Chad has been to Disney with we we, we love Disney. So right. the first to take me to Disney too. So we just yeah, but yeah. it's kind of close, and it's one of those things. And I, people sometimes look at me like, "Why would you want to go back?" And I like, I, I can't explain it. If and I understand why you won't get it. But yes, I love it. And I just, while I've been stuck here with the COVID and not been able to, yeah. I'm letting the beard go and the hair go. I've actually, I just ordered it and got it in a few days ago. So I've been wearing it everywhere. So it, it looks like an Imagineer's hat. It's it? not. So uh, really quick, and I'm sure our audience couldn't care less about this, but who cares? <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, um, my favorite hat is actually a white golf, and I don't play golf at all, but it, it was like this. But I can't find it. I can't find it on oh. eBay. I can't find it anywhere. And I saw this, and I thought, I really like that. And I, that's the reason well, why. Well, I have this hat. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, Never heard of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The mouse is everywhere. He's everywhere. So we, we try to go. In fact, um, I would be in two weeks. Uh, we we'd had it all booked we're my, my son we my son's first haircut was main street right there at the barbershop ah, his first haircut excellent. was there yeah he was a year old and his hair was so far down and he was looking shaggy but we were trying to get to that point to where we could get him that would be his first haircut so that's how i still remember when i i took shana to disney world and she was about two years old and she was terrified of the costume characters. And Pluto came sauntering over and looked down at her, and she was really afraid. And I said, I said to Pluto, she's really terrified of you guys. She does, she's never seen anyone like you. And Pluto proceeded to spend 10 minutes just interacting with Shayna and drawing her out to the point where by the time he was done, she was completely in love with Pluto. Mm -hmm. We then a minute or two later wound up going to um, the Emporium. Yep. And she hopped out of her stroller, made a direct beeline for the, for the plush toy section, picked out Pluto, went over, just sat down in her stroller with Pluto like this. And I turned to my then wife and I said, well, I guess we're buying her a Pluto. <laughs> It's, 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 there's something about the magic of Disney and I, yes. maybe it's brilliant marketing, but that's, I have the opposite side of that. I took my father, my father, you know, military and then working in factories yeah. and was always, you know, uh, I mean, we would watch Star Trek with me, but when I got into it, he was like, son, it's just a TV show. Right. And, um, he was getting ready to retire. And I said, Dad, uh, and and I didn't have kids yet. And yeah. I said, you know, my wife and I go down once a year. And I looked at, and my mom had never been. I said, look, do you think Dad will go? And she said, you know your father won't go. And I'm like, well, too bad. I already bought the tickets. And I know Dad's cheap and won't waste some money. Uh, <laughs> and so my dad went, and we drove from Kentucky. 
Keith held everybody down. And um, it was so funny because my dad, you know, we get up that morning and go, that's awful early to get up to go see, to ride a ride. Dad, you get there in the morning, you get, and it's, I was like, once you see it, it's huge, dad, you're going to have a good time. And we, we give him tickets, we get in and, you know, you go through this kind of security check and then all of a sudden I can't find my dad. And my wife's like, well, let's go get him their first time pins. And I'm like, I don't see dad. I don't know where dad went. Right. And I, my wife and my mother go, well, we're going to get the pins. And I'm looking for my father. And they had, when they opened early in the morning, you know, they have a couple characters up front and my dad saw Clarabelle cow. And oh, my dad has geez. always raised cows. Ah, so I literally am like, I don't know where dad and he, and I look over and he's talking to Clarabelle cow. And, and he, uh, I, I, I was like, dad, you want me to get your picture? And he goes, no, we're just having a conversation. And I was like, this man has yelled at me about, oh, you gotta be serious all the time. You gotta be. And, and he, and at the end of the day, we stayed, I mean, he stayed the entire time. He never rode roller coasters. He rode space mountain with my wife. I don't ride roller coasters. He got off of it and he goes, son, you should ride it. I'm like, dad, you're the one that told me never to ride roller coasters. And his exact phrase I'll never forget is, son, once you realize you're going to die, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he, at the end of the day, we watched the fireworks. We were getting ready to walk out and he goes, son, you're right. Everybody should be, try this. This is nice. phenomenal. And I, I was like, he's, he was 66, 67 at the time. And I still like, remember when I was at Disneyland one time, and I'm walking around and walking towards me comes what looks to be a reasonably tall woman wearing like a, like a Muslim woman clothed from head to toe in robes. And she's accompanied by four security guards wearing black outfits. And I'm looking at the way she's moving and something in the way something about the way she's walking looks familiar to me. And I glance at her hands. Her hands are pale brown and look too large to be a woman's hands. I put it all together in a second. And as she goes walking past me, I say, nice disguise, Michael. And Michael Jackson head snaps around and yeah. he looks at me like, shit. <laughs> and he keeps on walking and the guards are grinning. And later on, I happened to run into one of the guards. And I said, was that? And he says, Michael Jackson. Yes. So, you know, nice disguise, Michael. <laughs> nice. But, you know, you were mentioning Disney magic before. Um, Graham was in this princess production that they, he was playing a courtier or, or, you know, a grand duke or something like that. All the princesses were doing this show in front of the Magic Castle, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, you know, Snow White, all the major princesses at that point. And he said that if we come backstage, you know, come back around the castle after their show, he could introduce us to one of the princesses. And my four-year-old then daughter, Caroline, was really excited about the prospect of meeting one of the princesses. So we go there at the appointed time, and we and Graham brings us around the corner. Standing there was not one of the princesses, all of them, all the princesses, and all the princesses, and all the princes, and the freaking fairy godmother. And I knew intellectually 
that I'm looking at a bunch of costumed actors. But for a moment, I was just blown away by the living incarnation of Disney magic. I was like, <gasps> like that. Caroline flipped. Yep. I don't mean she was excited. I mean, she hid her face. She could not even bring herself to look at them. The fairy godmother took point and managed to draw Caroline out so that Caroline was feeling much more relaxed. And the princesses talked to her for a few minutes, and then they were going to go and take their break. And we said we'd come back and see their next show, which is going to be in 20 minutes or so. Caroline then made a beeline for the nearby souvenir shop, went straight to the rack where the princess costumes were, and proceeded to remove her dress <laughs> and start putting on, on it. And I said, okay, I guess we're getting her a princess dress. Yeah. And she wanted to get a crown, and we got her a crown. And she went out as Cinderella, and she showed up in front of the stage, and she found two other little girls who were dressed as princesses. One was Jasmine. The other was, um, I forget, I think it was Sleeping Beauty. No. Yeah, it was Jasmine Sleeping Beauty. And the princesses come out, and Cinderella sees Caroline, now outfitted as Cinderella. And Cinderella goes, oh, and she summons the other princesses over, and you know they're coming out, you know, to the music, but they're she's pointing at Caroline, and all the princesses are now coming over and waving at Caroline. The two little girls who were with her are under the impression that the princesses are waving at the three of them. <laughs> they don't know that they're basking in Caroline's reflected light, and I'm sure not about to tell them this. Absolutely not. Um, also, it was interesting, one of the little girls was black. Mm -hmm. The other one was Indian. I don't mean American Indian. I mean mm -hmm. India, from India. Mm -hmm. And they were all bonding. They were all getting along just great. So, you know, you know that song about you've got to be taught? It's absolutely correct because here were three completely different ethnic little girls all bonding over their yep. love of Disney princesses. Yes. But I will always remember Cinderella going, oh, like that. She was so thrilled that Caroline had picked her to dress up as. It's two experiences, too. It's one with you, it's one before kids, and then it's a different experience once you've had children. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I still remember when I was there and they had, in, they had installed this uh, play area that was basically just like a big jacked up thing of one of those climbing things that you see in a McDonald's. Yeah. And kids were playing on, on that thing, having a great time. And all the parents are standing there going, this is what they want to play on. <laughs> I spent oh, $3,000 yeah. to bring us here and they want to play on this thing. Yep. But on the other hand, we're all bonded because I was at Disney World and I noticed some seagulls were perching and, and flying right by. And I looked up and I went, mine. And immediately <laughs> other parents saw what I was looking at and all the other parents are going, mine, 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 mine. And we're all standing there doing the freaking seagulls from Finding Nemo because we'd all seen that movie a hundred freaking yeah. times. Their kids loved it so. 
So all these random adults are suddenly going, mine, mine, mine. It's funny as hell. That, well, I was say, that was a, the joy of, of the Disney Cruise Line for us as well. There was at one point we were on uh, Castaway Key, their private island, whatever. And I know. I, we went on Disney Cruise Line on our honeymoon. And it's, uh, there was, uh, for three seconds, uh, somebody lost eyes of their, their kids near the water. Yeah. And this lady said, yelled for, I assume, the, the child father. And actually, but she yelled, Dad. And immediately, all of us went, what do you need? Yeah. And it was, it was and we all, literally, three seconds later, that kid was found. Everybody knew that kid's name. Oh, we yeah. Like, if y'all need anything, let us know. We're going to go back. But if, and I was like, that doesn't have, I've been on other cruises. That oh, doesn't yeah. happen. There's something about Disney. No, we wound up taking the we wound up taking the Disney cruise on our honeymoon. As a matter of fact, we brought my three daughters, which was Kathleen's idea because her attitude was, we are starting a new family. Mm-hmm. What kind of message does it send if we leave three fifths of the family behind? Yep. At the very beginning, so our three daughters, my three daughters, went with us on the cruise, and they had. A terrific time and then after we did it was four days on the disney wonder mm-hmm. and then we spent three days at disney world and we wound up going to the adventurers club and the funny thing was this guy is at the adventurers club and he looks at me he goes oh my god you're peter david and i went <laughs> yes i am and i said and this is my new wife, Kathleen. And he goes, you're Kathleen? Because I've been writing about my family. I've been writing about my family in my column. Yeah. So he knew everybody. And he said, oh, my God, this is Kathleen. Congratulations. And then he suddenly looked at the other three kids who were sitting with us, And he went, oh, my God, this is Shana, Gwyneth, and Ariel? And we said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing here? And Shana said, oh, we're here every night. We've just given up. <laughs> <laughs> we're just always, we're always at Disney now, every single night. <laughs> and for a half a moment, he actually believed it <laughs> before we explained it. But yeah, that was so hilarious. Well, the one wow. thing I've learned from this is that I need to become better friends for you and that <laughs> you need to do all my reservations when it comes to Disney hotels. <laughs> what we need to do. No, is that, w- that won't work because when you show up for the reservation, yeah. you have to produce your Disney ID card. I'd say, well, right. If you don't have it, they're going to say they can't give you the reservation. Yeah, I, I get it. to you, but they're going to charge you a full rate. No, what, no. We to, what we need to do is work for Disney is the answer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That that's my next step. Well, Peter, thank you so much. You're this has been welcome. fantastic. I hope God, three it. hours we've been chatting. Holy yes. God. But I've but it's it's been a chat, right? Yes. It's been a good conversation. Yes, sir. Thank you. Like I said, you know, honestly, I'd there's several things that we didn't get to that I'd like to talk we about. We barely talked about comic books. <laughs> we barely talked about comic books. We barely talked about it. My wife has gone up to bed. If you want to continue talking about comic books, we can. I need to pee. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick, real quick though, before we do wrap up. So your your autobiography is coming out when? Yeah. It's coming out in July. We were very excited that we were going to have it out in time for the San Diego Comic Con. Oh, yeah. My life, I know yours has been, but they, there's so many cons that I, I'm just trying to let it go. 
Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's frustrating to me because it's costing me money. I've lost thousands of dollars in appearance fees that I was going to be getting at conventions that are no longer being held. Yeah, and some of these are not going to make it. Yeah, are not some some cons are not going to make it through this. You know, they're not going to be able to recover. Yeah, they're not going to be able to cover, and um, it's sad. I, I don't know, but I, I have nothing to say about it because I, I I whine about it a little bit to myself, and then I realized I'm I'm lucky that I'm able to work from home. I still have my job, and like twenty five percent or thirty. Actually, Kentucky it's it's above thirty now, the mm-hmm. unemployment rate, and. Funny. So I'm sitting here bitching that I can't go sit and talk to famous folks. Yeah. You know, of all the, that literally should be the definition. Me hold me saying that holding a Starbucks cup, standing somewhere would be the definition of, of first world privilege, first world problems. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I still love these armed idiots in Michigan. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, I I mean, it has been pointed out and it's absolutely true that if it had been a group of armed black guys, they'd be dead. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely be dead. Completely agree with you completely. And we've actually talked about this. It it's insane. It's insane. And the people who don't notice it is a whole other level, but didn't want to get into politics. Once again, we'd love to have you back on, I don't okay. know when, six months, a year, sometime, give you okay. some time. Do you want to come back on maybe after the book sometime? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So that would much. be in a month or two. Oh, shit. <laughs> Here, you got to remember, did I tell you I was at home with a two-year-old? Yes. <laughs> I do not envy you. It's okay. It's. I don't know what we, all All of our kids are home and we're all lucky to still be employed. But we Not all, to mention the fact that I literally keep forgetting what day it is. The only I way do. that I'm able to remember is recalling what I watched on TV. Yeah, I actually laughed my ass off. For the first thing when you said I can't do Friday because of Magnum P.I., I thought, that's in reruns. And then I realized, oh, there's a new Magnum P.I. that I've never there is. to watch. So. It's actually a really good series. Is it hmm. really? Yeah, it's really good. There is so much shit I want to watch. I want to watch the the book, the 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 books, the queue of books beside my bed. Have you been Just, watching Prodigal Son? Nope. Oh my God, you've got to watch it. it I, is, I'd like to. Yeah, I'm three episodes into Tales from the Loop. That's about it. Prodigal spoke. Son is one of the best dramas. It's Michael I Sheen, right? Michael Sheen has basically Hannibal Lecter. If Hannibal Lecter had a son and daughter, yep. the series itself is fantastic. And the last episode, the last two minutes of the last episode, I was stunned. And you've got to, you have to understand, you're talking to someone who watched The Sixth Sense and leaned over to his then wife about two minutes into the film and said, I bet he's dead. <laughs> so I'm really tough to fool. So the last two minutes of the season ender of Prodigal Son blew me away. So I got to tell you, you should see the whole series just for those last two minutes. Wow. Okay. How many seasons? Is it, is it just the first? Is there only one season? one season so far? Twenty episodes. All right. I know what I'm gonna. I'll start it tonight. Okay. Yes, I'll, absolutely. We'll watch, watch it on demand or whatever. I'll finish it after I do Picard. What? I'll finish it after Picard. I'll do it. Okay. (laughs) But I mean, Michael Sheen is 
brilliant as the father. Absolutely brilliant. But everyone in the series, it also, um, the sister is played by an actress you may know. I don't know, I mean personally, her name is Halston Sage. Did you watch um, The Orville? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Alara. Oh, yeah, okay. okay, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the one who left the series halfway yeah, yeah, through. Yeah. She plays, she plays uh, the sister. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I, actually, you, I, you I actually really like The Orville, by the way. Tell you what. Okay, your next assignment. Watch Prodigal Son and get back to me when you've seen the last episode. Okay. That we will do. Okay, we have I your email. Get your reactions. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sounds All right, great. Man. Thank you so much. You're I, welcome. I'll email you when this comes, uh, when we're about to come out. We've got okay. two or three. Actually, we've been able to book some people we haven't been able to book before yeah. because they were working. Yeah. So no, there's been the positive thing for that. So appreciate it so much. Uh, we'll thank you so. in it, and then we will um, just totally blow up the book. So thank okay. you so much. I'm going to stop recording now. Grrrr. <sighs>